I too, of course, want to uh, say thank you to all of our, our mothers who are here. I'm, um, I'm really grateful for my mother. I would most certainly consider her to be one of the foremost spiritual influences in my life, without a question, and I think many of us would say that. There's something about mothers, and I think the, one of the great tragedies of, of, our, of our culture is we shouldn't have a Mother's Day. It should be like a mother's half year or something like that. You know, we give whole months to other things that are quite questionable, but mothers get only one day. I think, what's wrong with us? That's really whacked out to think that um, we don't realize the, what would we be in, in every part of our culture without mothers, and a special blessing to have godly mothers um, like we have. So thank you. Thank you, thank you. Um, I, you know, this is going to be my last Sunday here with you precious people here. And uh, I thought to myself, what, what, what shall I talk about? You know, we got this huge book, this Bible, there's much there. But it seems to me that um, the most important thing I could do was to point our attention up to God. Um, we're facing, in our Sunday school class this morning, we talked about Daniel, and, and here was a man that God gave him insight into the future, and it was very, very frightful. And, and he was very disturbed by what he saw, and we're heading into a future that's uh, um, both uh, very challenging as well as very exciting, and you especially at this church. And uh, our fears are just everywhere. I, um, I think I, I saw this week, uh, it said this, 75% of young people are frightened by the future. So we live in a culture in which one of the greatest difficulties is that people are just afraid. And if you listen to the news or almost anything you see, every day people are becoming more and more frightened. Um, I recently have not become frightened, but I've been more aware of what artificial intelligence is all about. And, and um, you, you wonder, are computers going to take over the world? You, you don't, and that's certainly scary. And as you know, communism is on the rise again. Fascism is on the rise. Extremism is on the rise. And you wonder, will democracy even survive? And of course, there have been famous people in the past who say it can't survive. Because once people realize you can vote yourself pleasure, uh, privileges out of the national treasury and you become dependent on that money, you will only vote for those who promise to give you more and more. And at some point, fiscal policy will destroy the country. That was predicted many, many years ago, and we are almost living to see it take place right now. As you know, in our part of the world, though not in the majority of the world, in our part of the world, that is the Western world, Christendom is going down. That's not true in South America. It's certainly not true in Africa or in Asia. But in our part of the world, it is true. Um, you, you know, of course, with digital things going on, now um, I was with a person last night for dinner who was a police officer and was talking about the digital surveillance of everything in our town now. They can, um, in fact, they have a system by which um, as soon as uh, the, 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 the computer hears a gunshot, the cameras all turn toward that. That's right. That's already happening right now, so they can see everything, where every car is going, what every person in that area is doing. That's, that's, we've got that already in my town, and, and, and you wonder, will, Bill, will Big Brother know everything I'm going to do? I mean, how scary, and of course, the pandemic that we lived through over the last few years, and uh, there's some suggestion that that may be man-made, and uh, well, we have another one. 
that will kill millions of people. And then, of course, every day on every news program, we hear about global warming. And you, you wonder, are we all going to burn, or will the, we're going to all drown to death as the, the, river, or the, the oceans rise? And um, uh, income, you know, you talk about more and more people having billions of dollars, and the, the gap between those that have so much money and those who have nothing is getting bigger and bigger, and, and inflation is a reality, and then this whole sexual revolution we're living in the midst of, and you wonder, will marriage even survive anymore? Um, in countries that are much more liberal than ours, like in Europe, marriage is just almost uh, not even a, a factor anymore. And then, of course, natural disasters and the fear of nuclear catastrophe, and I could go on and on, but you know the, the, the script. Um, fear is one of the dominant uh, emotions that we're facing as people in our world. However, that is not to be our mindset. We are not people who live in fear. As you know, next week, this church is going to change. It's going to hopefully change significantly and much for the better. But change is always scary. It's always fearful. We don't know what the future will hold. But, and, and I can't, couldn't begin to tell you what's going to happen in the future, but this I do know. I do know who holds the future. That much I do know. And I thought that the best thing we could do this day is to look at that reality. Because our world, though it's filled with fears, some of them legitimate and some of them illegitimate, the real key is what is happening in heaven. And so today, um, though most of my, my sermon is going to be just scripture, I, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Revelation chapters four and five. Because in those chapters, John, who is going to be, who is given by God a vision of what is going to happen in the future, and it is scary, incredibly scary, until it's incredibly glorious at the end. He is going to be given a picture of what is going to happen in the future. But before he is given that picture, God ushers John into heaven to see what's going on in heaven. Because if you take life on this earth and you remove heaven, it is really, really scary. You wonder, in fact, you've got to wonder, are we going to all destroy ourselves? Or is some computer going to eat us up? We don't know. But it's, it's very scary. But when you see it from the perspective of heaven, everything changes. And so I couldn't encourage you more than anything else as you face the next steps for this church May those steps be all based on what is taking place in heaven, not the fears that we have here on earth. And so today, we're going to be ushered into heaven. And by the way, the name of the book to which we're going to go today is called Revelation. Of what? Now, if I asked many of you, you'd say, if I said, it's Revelation of what? You'd say, the Revelation of the future. And you would be wrong. No, it is not the revelation of the future. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what is being revealed. It's, it, it's the revelation of Jesus. And he's the one. We need to, what's he doing right now? What's he doing? That's, that's the question. Um, uh, is, is he frightened too? <laughs> no, heavens no. What's going on in the real power center of the universe? 
Not, not, not our White Houses and Oval Offices. No, that, those, are, those are little tiny power centers. Those are not the power center. What's going on in the power center of the universe? It's not mayors or governors or council people or representatives. No, they're, they're, they're pawns, really. What's going on in the power center of the universe? That's where we want to look today. And when we do, the first thing that John is given a vision of is a throne. One of the greatest fears that we have as, as human beings, and I would say the vast majority of people on earth today are being ruled by evil people. Why? Because almost by definition, once you get into the place of ruling other people, you have probably have been, you've probably been corrupted by power and money. When you have a good leader, it's, it's, an, it's unusual. And just take our last four presidents. Probably about half of the people in America would say a couple of the last four presidents have destroyed the country, and the other half would say the other two have. That's just the reality. Everyone thinks our leaders are rotten. And we, by the way, have some of the best. We have one of the best governments that the world has ever seen. So a reality of life which gives people incredible fear is the bad people that rule us. In fact, you know the famous comment of Winston Churchill. He said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. <laughs> That's what he said. Now today, the first thing we're going to see in the passage of Scripture from Revelation chapter 4 is a throne. It's going to talk about what encircles the throne and what surrounds the throne and what comes from the throne and what's before the throne and what's around the throne. The focus, the key word, is going to be throne. And when you think of the word throne, that means, obviously, a seat of power. So where is the seat of power? All the time in our news, probably not in China or elsewhere, but we say, the American president is the most powerful man in the world. And when I hear that, I went, such garbage. First of all, it's probably not even true. And in fact, it's really possible that one of you is more powerful than our president, because our president does not affect the eternal destiny of people so much as a person who shares the gospel does. So our power is greater. Than, so when they say that, that's first of all baloney. But if you look at it from the Earth's perspective, maybe our president does have the greatest amount of power in geopolitical circles. But that's nothing next to the real power center of the universe. Let me introduce you to that place right now. Here's the throne. After this, I looked. The eye is John. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And by the way, in writings of all kinds, there are all kinds of writings through history that talk about doors in heaven or people in apocalypses trying to get to their destination. And in almost all of those that are these closed doors, they have to go around and find a way through it and then they have another obstacle to get past. But John immediately says, in the throne room of heaven, the door is wide open and you don't have to force your way in because God says, first of all, he announces his coming with a trumpet and says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. 
That one, of course, is God. Well, what does God look like? Well, you, you can't describe God. He doesn't have physical features like we do. So takes these, these, these jewels, these emeralds, these beautiful stones with light reflecting through them that's, and just blowing away the place. He said, it's, it's, it was like root jasper and ruby and a rainbow shone like an emerald, not a half moon, but encircled the whole throne. And surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass Clear as crystal. So the first thing we see as we are ushered into the throne room, the power center of the universe, is this incredible scene. There is a throne. And the one who is on that throne can't be described in human terms because he defies all human imagination. He's much, much greater and more powerful and indescribable. We can't even describe him except take the most expensive things we know of on this earth. And that's what's shown from this throne. And then he was told to, to come into this throne room and he found that around this throne it was being encircled by these 24 thrones with elders on them. And there's much debate as to who these 24 are. Some say angelic beings. Some say the 24 groups of worship leaders in the Old Testament. The most common explanation, it's the 12 representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, Old and New Testament. Since they're called elders, they're probably leaders, and it seems like that's the, the, the most probable one as far as I'm concerned. But what does that say? All of the people of the Old Testament, the leaders of that, and all of the leaders of the New Testament who represent all God's people throughout all of time are around the throne. And who are these people? We, we don't know who they are, but they represent all of us. And there they are with, with, with crowns, surrounding this throne of God, all who have been invited there, including all of us who have been invited as well. And there from that throne comes lightning and thunder, like when, when Moses was up on the mountain and the, and the law was given to Moses, a scene like that, but multiplied many times more, was what this throne looked like in heaven, signifying great, great power. And, uh, of course, those 24 Elders around the throne were acting like priests. And remember, one of the great hallmarks of the Reformation with Martin Luther was the reintroduction of the priesthood of all believers. In God's kingdom, we don't have this hierarchy of clergy and laity or archbishops and popes and bishops and all this, that, like a big pyramid. We're all priests. And these 24 seated around the throne represent all of us. And then the seven spirits of God, 
We don't know exactly what that means, but of course, when the number seven is used, that means the completeness, the fullness, the greatness. The Holy Spirit is present, and, and his, his influence all over the world. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible, when I think of the Holy Spirit, is, is the words of Jesus. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. To me, that's a very, very powerful verse because one of the things I wrestle with, and I hope you do as well, is what about people who, who have never heard of Jesus? And my understanding is the Holy Spirit works incessantly all over the world, all the time, to show us who we really are, that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, showing us God in His holiness. This is the standard, and this is where we are, and the gap between the two is judgment. And what is God looking for from all human beings is that we would see and we would acknowledge what the Holy Spirit is doing incessantly. We would see our inadequacy, our sin. We would see the gap between the holiness of God and what he expects and that judgment awaits us unless that sin is atoned. And so the Holy Spirit prepares the way for the gospel incessantly, everywhere, all the time. What a gift. So here these, the Holy Spirit is there, God the Father on the throne, and soon we're going to see the Son is at the right hand of the Father. Incredible. And then the sea of glass. The sea of glass probably um, is, that sea is the floor of heaven and the ceiling of the created universe. And its tranquility shows that heaven is at peace as the earth is in turmoil, and God is on the throne. You see, the throne room of heaven is a picture of greater welcome and majesty and order and inclusivity and power and peace than we can even imagine. Because all of God's people, Old and New Testament, are represented, and God is on the throne. What do we notice about the control room of the cosmos? First of all, it's a monarchy. It's not a democracy. <laughs> nope. We're not going to tell God what to do. We're not going to tell our leaders what to do. God is on the throne. It's a monarchy. And he is in control. And we're there. The elders representing all of God's people throughout all of time, we're there. And it's otherworldly in its order and its power and its majesty. And uh, we get to be there. God is on the throne. We're not. He is in control. We're not. And he's got the whole world in his hands. This week at uh, the, the Romeo, or a couple weeks ago at the Romeo group, that's a, a group of men here at the church we get together on Thursdays, retired old men eating out. I think that's what it stands for. One of the men um, shared with me a, a song. It's called um, There Is a Higher Throne by uh, Keith and Kristen Getty. Listen to these words. There is a higher throne than all this world has known where faithful ones from every tongue will one day come. Before the sun will stand, made faultless through the Lamb, believing hearts find promised grace, salvation comes. 
Here, heaven's voices sing, their thunderous anthem rings, through emerald courts and sapphire skies, their praises rise. All glory, wisdom, power, strength, thanks and honor are to God our King, who reigns on high forevermore. And there we'll find our home, our life before the throne, we'll honor him with perfect song where we belong. He'll wipe each tear-stained eye as thirst and hunger die. The Lamb becomes our shepherd king. We'll reign with him. That's what's going on right now. The occupied throne in heaven assures us that God is in control. We spend most of our time in this world worrying about who occupies the throne of the, the chair in the Oval Office. Compared with who sits on the throne of heaven. As you face the days ahead, it seems to me one of the things that we as Christians have got to do is we've got to stop fighting battles we can never win and start fighting the battle we can never lose. Why would you fight battles against a, a, a culture? We're not going to change. Sinners generally sin. That's kind of what they're made to do. And when sins are, sinners are controlled of a culture, that's kind of the way it bends. And we spend so much of our time worrying about things that we can never change, and we don't engage ourselves in a battle we can never lose. Christ has won. 2,000 years ago, he won. Heaven was open. Sin was atoned for. It's over. Just the mopping up operations and the bringing in. We, if this church in the future is going to thrive, the focus must be on the gospel. People, not solving the problems of our world because the control center is not here. It's there. First, the throne. But the next thing we see there is their creatures. And over and over again in these verses, verse 6 through 8, the focus is on the creatures. Not only do we fear, the reason that we probably fear bad leaders is because we know they're not good, and there's something deep inside the human spirit that longs for goodness. And because goodness in our society has been so eradicated, and because we don't even know what right and wrong is anymore, and we don't even believe there's truth anymore, we don't trust anyone. We don't trust any politician, we don't trust preachers, we don't trust anyone. And so fears just rise because there's no one we can trust. Well, let's see. What happens in heaven? Oh, by the way, one of, another verse that I love in the Old Testament is Moses and God are having a conversation. And Moses says to God, and I'm paraphrasing, oh God, why don't you show me your glory? I, I can imagine God jig is, is, uh, is snickering. He goes, Moses, that would vaporize you. I can't show you my glory. But here's what we'll do. Paul says, I mean, God says, I will let all my goodness pass in front of you, and I will tell you my name. And then in the next chapter, God tells us his name. Moses, this is my name. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who forgives sin, iniquity, and rebellion, but does not leave the guilty unpunished. But you see, all of that is subsumed, 
God says, under my goodness, that's my goodness. And so what do we find? These 24, these creatures in heaven, the living creatures doing, the four of them, extolling the holiness of God. Here's the word of God. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third like had the face of a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. So John sees after the throne, his attention becomes fixed now on these four creatures around the throne. Four majestic creatures, each of them different, even each of them summarizing a different part of God's character, and so each of these being related to each of the four Gospels, by the way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what are they doing? Well, they're beings who, who, whose eyes see everything. They know everything that's going on, given to them by God. They're probably some kind of angelic being created by God. They see everything. And what they do ceaselessly is they extol the holiness of God. One of the reasons that we have no trust, one of the reasons that we are so fearful is because the goodness eludes us. Remember what Romans says, and Paul says in Romans, there is no one who's good. And remember what Jesus said, there's no one that's good but God alone. And instinctively, and if we've lived very long on this planet, we know that's true. And there's a deep longing in our hearts, and that which the only thing that we can take away our fears is, is there goodness anywhere? Is there righteousness anywhere? Is there holiness anywhere? Is there anyone that we can implicitly trust all the time? And on earth, the answer is no. Besides, you can't trust yourself. Who do you, why do you think you can trust somebody else? But in heaven, there is one who is 100% all the time trustworthy. You see, the occupant at the power center of the universe is eternally good and holy. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. So the living creatures not only extol the holiness of God, but they are worship leaders, and entering into this worship are the 24 elders who represent all of us, and so we're all there around the throne. And the first thing we do, we notice that there's some of these people, maybe all of them wearing crowns. But if you wear a crown in heaven, you're wise enough to know that that crown is on your head because of the, of the glory of Jesus, because of the grace of God. And so we take those crowns and we throw them at his feet, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea as we sing. Why? Because we know 
we who are there in heaven, we know that we have everything we have is because of God's grace. We don't deserve those crowns, though God is thrilled to grant them to us. We know who the real source of all goodness and grace is. And of course, it's God alone. Another song that I, I love, I, I like the songwriter a lot. Her name is Twyla Paris. And she wrote a, a song that's, um, God is in control. Do you know that song, any of you? I love it. Here's the words. This is no time for fear. This is a time for faith and determination. Don't lose the vision here, carried away by emotion. Hold on to all that you hide in your heart. There is one thing that always has been true. It holds the world together. God is in control. We believe that his children will not be forsaken. God is in control. We will choose to remember and never be shaken. There is no power above or beside him. We know God is in control. Oh, God is in control. History marches on. There is a bottom line drawn across the ages. Cultures can make its plan, but the line never changes. No matter how the deception may fly, there is one thing that has always been true. It will be true forever. God is in control. We believe that his children will not be forsaken. God is in control. We will choose to remember and never be shaken. There is no power above or beside him. We know God is in control. You see, one of the greatest challenges of our time is to know who we can trust. Um, it's amazing how much that's eroded. I don't think of one group. We can't trust physicians. We certainly don't trust pollsters. We don't trust entertainers, performers. We don't trust politicians, of course. We don't trust lawyers. We don't trust preachers, politicians, pundits, presidents. We don't trust anyone. But there is one in whom we can have implicit trust, God. And the fact that the creatures around the throne remind us that there is one who is entirely trustworthy. And what's our response? Gratitude to God. Discernment, because we know trust is a very precious commodity. And reliance on the only plumb line we have, the Word of God. That's all we have. Well, it turns now from chapter 4 to chapter 5. And everyone wonders, and almost everyone is afraid, of what does the future hold? And I can't tell you what that will be. But this much I do know. I know who holds the scroll. Here's what it says. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. When I first thought of that scroll, um, and by the way, the scroll stands for the unfolding of the future. I always thought of seven seals along here, and they had to be unfolded, but that's not the way it worked. You unfolded the one seal, and it had writing on both sides, but then you roll it a little bit farther, and it comes to the second seal, and then you have to break that seal, and then you roll it, unfold it further. And some of the scrolls were like to 30 feet long. They were very, very long um, on, on parchment. And so the, the, the scene in heaven that John sees now pictures a scroll in the hand of the one on the throne, God the Father. And here's what it said. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? 
But no one in heaven, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. So, no future. The world's just going to go on and on until we destroy ourselves. That's, that's why they th So it says, John says, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside of it. The future can never be brought open because there's no one worthy to handle the future. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So here, um, in the Roman world, oftentimes wills or contracts were written. And on one side, it would have all the details of the, the contract. And on the other side would be a brief summarization of that part of the contract. And who can open up the contract with the future? Not the contract with America, but the contract with the world. Who is worthy? And there's no one. And interestingly, did you notice? There's no one in heaven. There's no angelic being. There's no representative of the godly people through the ages. No one is worthy. There's no one living on earth, and there's no one dead. No one in the, under the ground. There's no one on all the universe that's worthy except one. Why? Because Jesus alone, among all human beings, was without sin and lived a life of perfect obedience to God. He has no other equals. Jesus alone could pay and did pay for the penalty for all human sin. Jesus alone rose from the dead never to die again to demonstrate his power and authority over death and evil. Jesus alone conquered sin and death and hell and Satan himself so only he can be trusted with the world's future. Jesus alone is the cornerstone. He holds everything together and in line. Jesus alone is the capstone. He puts the finishing touches on everything. Jesus alone is the fulcrum. He is the point that supports the entire universe. And Jesus alone is the centerpiece. He's the only one worthy. I am I, so troubled by our crazy culture of pluralism. We put Jesus in the same camp as Buddha and Muhammad. I think, what? Have you read about him? How could you possibly put these people in the same camp? They're, they're, they're trillions of miles apart. He does not belong in the camp with any of these. They, they aren't God. They're not God men. They were not sinless, acknowledged by all of their followers. Jesus alone is worthy. He's unique. I, um, my daughter, my youngest daughter, when she was three, had cancer. And, uh, and then she had over two years of chemotherapy. And those were really tough times for us. But one of the difficult events, and we had to do this many times, is we'd have to go to a children's hospital, and she would receive spinal taps. And they didn't even do any, there was no, nothing to numb the pain. They were very painful for her. So Dr. Odom, she would stand on one side of the table, and I would be on the other side sitting down, and my daughter Priscilla would be facing me, and of course screaming. She's only three. And she was, no, Daddy, no, stop, stop her, Daddy, don't let her do it. Why is she doing this to me? Stop. 
I could have said to my daughter, Priscilla, your leukocytes by mitosis are multiplying in a crazy rate. And I could have gone on and given her an explanation of cancer. <sighs> Couldn't understand one word of that. And Dr. Odom, she, who was the head of oncology at Children's Hospital, the greatest doctor in the world as far as I'm concerned, she could have given an incredibly elaborate definition of leukemia to a three-year-old. But a three-year-old cannot understand one word of that. The why question is impossible. So then Priscilla would say to me as she's screaming, she said, Daddy, can I pull your hair? And she'd grab my hair and pull my hair. So you can do whatever you want. You see, the answer to the why question is impossible. The real answer is not why, but who. God could not possibly tell us his algorithm as to why there's pain and suffering in this world and his int intricate algorithm with three, three quadrillion pieces to it. He could never explain that to our mortal minds any more than a doctor can explain leukemia to a three-year-old. But that's not the issue. The issue is who can we trust? Who holds the keys to the future? And heaven shouts, Jesus is worthy. Jesus alone is worthy. It's not what or why, but who. And remember with Job, as Job went through his terrible sufferings and trying to figure out why is this happening to him, and they, his friends give him all these wacko answers, ultimately God says, Job, can you make a horse for me? You want to make a horse? How about can you make a few stars, throw a few stars up there? And then God goes into this elaborate definition of all that he has created. And what does Job do? I, I put my hand over my mouth. God doesn't tell him why. God tells him who he can trust. And the great answer for us as we live in this world and as you look forward is, who can you trust? And who can you trust? The Lamb. Here's what he says next. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Wow. Who is the Lamb? He's all-loving, called that omnibenevolent. He conquered sin and death. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-worthy. He is God. And as the Gaither Band reminds us, that king is coming back again. He left this earth being crucified and raised from the dead as the suffering servant, having died for our sins. He will return. When he does, he will be the king. And it ends, finally, in the throne room, 
we see worship service in progress. Who are the worship leaders? Well, the angels. How loud is the volume? Oh, it says real loud. Better get your earmuffs ready. Who is the focus of the worship? The Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do they worship? Because he's worthy. Who joins the worship? It says every creature. And how do they behave when they worship? They speak, they sing, and they fall on their faces before the Lamb. Here's how it ends. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. As I was preparing for this, and I, I, I contacted Rebecca just late last night or yesterday, and I came across a song I remember singing. I love it. It's one of my favorites. It's actually written in the 1860s. It's called Before the Throne of God, and we're going to sing it. But I'd like you to hear the words. Here's how it's sung. It, it sums up this passage so beautifully. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ, my Savior and my God. That's magnificent theology put to music. I think I've told you I, I went to Wheaton College. I began in 1970, and just a few years before me, the president of Wheaton College, his name was uh, Dr. Edmund, he um, uh, was a beloved um, president, and he and his wife were warriors of prayer. I forgot what time they got up every morning to pray for every student at the, at the school. But interestingly, he loved to speak in chapel to the students. And, um, uh, but he, he was sick for a time, and so he wasn't able to be in chapel for a, a period of months. But he got better, and so he was able on, uh, I got the date, September 22nd, 1967, to be back in chapel to speak to the students. And his, his sermon that day, or his speech to the students, was entitled, In the Presence of the King. And as he was preaching, he died. Can you imagine? That's a way to go. 
Here he preaches about in the presence of the king, and he went right as he was preaching and went. Where did he go? To the throne room of, of, of heaven. You're going to face a future now no, unknown to any of us, but this I know. There is one who loves this body. He's the bride. He's your bride. He's your head. He's your cornerstone. He's your capstone. He's your centerpiece. He's your fulcrum. He is with you. Change is inevitable. When that change comes, we don't look at it with fear. We go up. We look at what God is up to. And what's he up to? He's up to building his kingdom, bringing people to Jesus Christ through the gospel. That's what he's into. He doesn't build build things on earth so much. He builds heaven. May you enter these future days with your eyes fixed upward and outward toward the people who desperately need in this area to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. May God bless you richly. Let me pray. And then would you sing, hopefully heartily with me, the throne about the throne of God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, good Father, holy Father, selfless Jesus, powerful Holy Spirit, who never stops wooingness to Jesus and to you. May your Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, may the Lord Jesus Christ so inhabit this area, this land here, that the gospel would just be like dynamite and go forth into Wheat Ridge and far, far beyond through these people and the people you would bring here. May you bless this church with new people, maybe a new name, but with the same Jesus. And may you, Heavenly Father, give them eyes to see by faith what you're up to. And may you overcome the eyes of fear that would cause them to look down. May you bless them, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.